There's a study that we do on institutions and their contribution to making Canada a better place. Michael, at the very top of the list is... How can a set of skills lead you down the path to success? That's what we're setting out to answer on the Ed Up Canada podcast. I'm your host, Michael Sangster. Join me as we unpack how leaders around the world have taken training and skills and turned that into a lasting career. Now let's learn together. Welcome back to the Ed Up Canada podcast with our special guest today, Nick Nanos. Nick's an interesting guy. He's done a lot of interesting stuff in his his career. We're going to get to talking about a few things here before we get started. I'll give you a little bit of a, a background of what we're going to talk about here, about the labor market and how it's drastically changed over the last 10 years and how a global labor market has resulted in us having unique labor market needs. So we're going to talk a little bit about how we're going to meet those needs today, some of the challenges that we're facing. We're going to talk about market demographics, uh, how career education can play a role in meet, meeting some of those. And we're going to talk about public perceptions, about international students and their roles in meeting Canada's needs. And just to get some of Nick's perspectives from the time and work that he spent. I'm excited to have Nick on today because when I moved back to Ottawa 30 odd years ago, Nick and his brother, John, are a great story. Two brothers who I got to know because their office was next to mine in a corporate center. And I, John, I'm, Nick, I'm sure you remember this, but you were two brothers in a room starting a company. And I can't think of a better way to start today than just to talk about that. So, Nick, people can Google you, but tell me about that story about just getting going. Well, you know, the thing is, is you never know how things are going to turn out. I remember at one point, there was like a bit of an intervention. I don't know if, Michael, if you've ever had someone do an intervention you would think, with you. But no. <laughs> well, I remember at one point there was an intervention where my friends from university said, Nick, you're obviously struggling. Get a job. You're a smart guy. Go work for someone. You'll do really well. And then they said, Do you actually think that you're going to be like a national pollster? And, they, you know, they didn't say it to diminish me, but they just said, You know, are you going to compete with like Alan Gregg and be in the Globe and Mail? Like, come on. And I, and I literally, I remember I was flat broke at the time. And I remember saying, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I'm going to give it a go. And uh, business partners with my brother. And, you know, the one thing about being, you know, a family business is it, everybody doesn't get paid, right? It's kind of like, it's not like you've got employees where you're paying them first. Been there. So. There's nothing harder than family business because it never stops. It's always at the dinner table. It's always at the holidays too, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, it doesn't stop at all. So, you know, the thing is, is we just went from there and we took a very ambitious project, which is basically, let's be a player in the market research and polling business. And we just sliced it into little parts. So it's kind of like you start off with smaller projects and you build to larger projects. People trust you with larger, more important engagements. And you just build from there. So I want to say... 30-year overnight success, maybe? All, I don't know. That's Something. always the way it is. It's an interesting kind of segue, talking about family, talking about a lot of our career colleges, the sector I'm working in now, are family-owned businesses that have been handed down from generation to generation. And that is a unique perspective that you've got. It's not easy working with family. It's difficult working with family. But you've always got somebody who's got your back at the end of the day. And you've got that with John, don't you? 
Oh, absolutely. It also helps that we are completely different personalities. Well, equal partners. John's the money person and I'm the marketing. I'm the sales guy, the sales and researcher. So he's got his own team doing stuff. He runs all the money and the operations. And then I'm working on the math and I'm working on marketing and sales. So having different responsibilities helps. Is it hard being the smarter brother though? That has to put extra pressure on you at around the family dinners. No, I'm the better looking brother. We'd always say who's who's the smarter and who's the better looking brother. You know, that's that's usually how we would torture people. Well, I did have an interesting question for you. So where are you going to keep your new order of Canada? Congratulations. Well-deserved. You are a community guy and that's been noticed by others, obviously. So congratulations. Thanks. Well, you know, I'm still digesting that and uh, this might sound odd, but it's going to be behind the door in my office and why that's the case. It's not going to be like a trophy in the middle of the office because, you know, one thing my dad told me is that you judge people based on their character and their work, not how they're dressed, not how they look, not on them telling you how great they are, just character and the quality of the work. So I don't want people coming in and seeing fancy things on the walls. I want them to come in and we'll talk about work and that's how I want to be judged. And uh, that's how I judge people too. It's kind of like, that's all that really matters is someone's personal character and, uh, and the quality of what they do. The rest is, I should, it's insensitive. I don't really care. Well, it's funny. I, I, I have a history or a tradition of going up and shaking hands with anybody I see with the order of can of pin though, because it is a big deal. And I always go over and try and find out what their story is because I know the process. It's no small feat to get through that process. It is a long drawn out process to be approved. It involves the chief justice of the Supreme Court, the clerk of the Privy Council, and it is a it, it is an impressive award. So congratulations on that. But there's always a story behind that pin for the people who wear it. And there's nothing I love more than seeing Lauren Michaels wearing that at Saturday Night Live or, or Canadians around the world who wear it wherever they go. It, it, it should be worn. It is a huge tribute to you. So let's keep it moving because we don't want to talk too much about you. Uh, we do have listeners. <laughs> let's get into the labor market. So you do data research. You work for companies who are trying to figure things out or trying to, in many ways, tell a story or tell a narrative. So what trends are you seeing that worry you about the labor market in Canada? The number one piece of research or thing that we've learned in the last while, because we do surveys of CEOs and we do uh, surveys of large enterprises and small enterprises across the country. And the number one problem that they identify is that they say that there's a shortage of skilled labor, the people that they need. And, you know, closing the gap between the skills that people have and the skills that employers need is really the, I think the number one challenge, I think for any economy, right? Because if you have an educational system that's firing on all cylinders, that is agile, that's flexible, that is responsive to the market, that's just going to create prosperity and jobs for everyone. If you're locked in the 1800s and still training people the way you were like 100 years ago, it's just a, a recipe for missed opportunity. It's a recipe for uncompetitiveness. And you know, the thing is, is the other trend apart from that skills gap, is that the skills that are needed are changing so fast. How quickly are educational institutions responding to the changes in artificial intelligence, hospitality, all technology, all that kind of stuff? And I think those are the two trends, the disconnect on the skills front, but then the need for educational institutions to be agile and to think about how they're meeting needs today, but also tomorrow. 
it's one of the greatest strengths of the the sector that, that we're in is they move fast because in many ways they're closer to the employers and they train faster. You train somebody in three months or six months to get back to work because our students are a little bit older. But let's make it personal for you in your own career. What are the skills you're looking for? When you're hiring some, you said you had 80 people on board now, I think I heard. What are the skills that you're looking for? Because we can talk about cyber and truck driving and all these things that are desperately needed in this country. But what are those, if there's a student listening today, what's that thing you look for that makes you go, that's the one I want on my team? Are you a learner? I'd always tell people, you know what? I need you to have an attitude of wanting to learn all the time because we can bring you in. And you know, when you look at the people that are in the firm, they're not like cookie cutters that are coming out of the commerce department or the economics or the statistics or department or anything like that. There's a diversity of people. And we always tell them the same thing. We will train you internally. You know, like you'll have your training, which is great, but we'll also help you learn within the, the firm, the things that you need to, the skills that you need to have. You can't realize your potential unless you are open to learning. And just to use a couple examples, Michael, we administer a test. It's actually a learning aptitude test and a test for cultural fit. And the learning aptitude test is kind of like, the math part is like, can you add five five-digit numbers? Can you multiply in? Can you do that? Can you write? And the whole idea is, is that you can't be afraid of doing these things. If you're not afraid, then you can learn. And that's actually what's critical for us. And to think of yourself as a lifelong learner. I'm a lifelong learner. I'm, I still go and take courses. People go like, what, Nick, what are you doing? taking courses and learning about stuff. And it's like, because in the course of work, if I take a course and I learn one thing, I know a lot, but if I learn one thing, then it's worth it to me. So an attitude of being a lifelong learner and thinking, you know, these are the skill sets that I have today and I'm really good at what I do, but I need to continually stay up to date, which is why we need institutions that are up to date that can deliver those opportunities. We're going to go through the, the personalities of, of Nick Nanos today as we're on the call. That, that's positive Nick we're talking about there. That's optimistic Nick. Yeah. Are we going to get angry Nick while we're here? I don't know. It depends on what you ask me about. Well, Are we going to talk about the Toronto Maple Leafs? No, Is that it? Or? Well, that, that'll make me happy. <laughs> we'll talk about the Montreal. Well, it's a bit early in the season. They still have yeah. hope, don't they? Yeah. They still have hope. It's, it's early in the year. So one of the big issues, and I don't know actually if you've done polling on this, but one of the things that we're looking at right now is the public perception of international students and how they play a role positively or negatively in meeting our labor market needs. I have a very strong view on this. And our sector has not been the big player in international students, but we believe we can play a bigger role. And we're working with governments to, to make that case, to talk about where we think we can solve some of the labor market shortages with people who want to come to this country and be educated and want to stay in this country and be productive, which our country has been built on. But have you done any polling? I actually don't know. And what are your own thoughts? Yeah. Well, and the, the other thing is we've done research in this area on international students, but also, as you know, Michael, I used to be the chair of Carleton University. I was chair of the board. So I have that line of sight where you know I understand that. So what do we know about international students? First of all, Having international students as part of your educational experience, and let's talk about international versus domestic, enhances your learning experience because you're bringing other views and other talents to the table. So that's a contributor. For universities and colleges, it's a net bottom line contributor because it means that they can scale up resources and deliver better curriculum. The other thing is, is now here's the kicker on international students when we're doing public opinion research. 
people are supportive of international students. However, some get a little nervous. I'm not sure if nervous is the right word, but have an issue with having an international students come to Canada for us to skill them up and then they leave. What they want are international students to come to Canada for us to create the skills that we need for our economy. And then they want them to stay in Canada and contribute to the competitiveness of the Canadian economy. So I think that's a little bit of a nuance for Canadians. It's kind of like, okay, so we're going to train all these people. They're going to benefit from all of our knowledge. And then they're going to go back to another place. And that other country is going to benefit from all the time and investment and training that we've had. So, you know, the thing is, is for those international students to stay, that's a net positive. People see that it's a contributor and it's kind of people are happy that they've come, that they've trained and that they can make Canada more competitive. So I'll add that little asterisk. Come to Canada, get trained and leave. It's like, well, I'm not sure about that. Come to Canada and stay. Absolutely. 100%. I'm optimistic that's coming through the data. It's coming through your research. And I got to just notice something. I got to use the word research when I talk about what you do, not polling, right? It's research because you do focus groups and you go deep into into issues with people when you're when you're putting something together, don't you? Oh, absolutely. And you know, the thing is, is that the whole idea behind what we do is to put a spotlight on what's happening and to give voice to people. And you know, sometimes the numbers are ugly. They're ugly for companies and they're ugly for governments and they're ugly for organizations. And then other times there's just one little nugget that allows you to kind of move your file forward and figure out how can you better attract talent? How can you engage people? How can you motivate people? What can be our competitive advantage? So it's, uh, yeah, it's very numbers, statistical heavy. It's very difficult to see in the dark is what I always say. So you want to have data, you want to have information, you want to act on kind of research that you have put together in many cases. So uh, I've always liked that phrase. Yeah. The other interesting thing, Michael, is that younger people are now much more savvy than we were because there's more information in the public domain. Like if you're, there's a particular skill or area that you're interested in, you can now get data online for free on there's a trade that I want. What is the demand in Edmonton for this, right? And I think young people are much more sophisticated consumers of not only where are the jobs, but what type of jobs that are out there. Like I think, Michael, for me and you, we did stuff we loved, which you got to love what you do. I didn't know how it was going to work out, but you know, there's there's a lot more data out there for individuals to make decisions on the type of training that they need and the type of career that they want to pursue, how much it'll get, how much it pays, and where they should be working. And there is no path anymore. Like you're you're a bit of a rarity in my world. You've been in a sector since I've known you. I know, but you've built a company, and that that is different. But I've been high tech, telecom, aerospace, and and now this. I work with the regulated career colleges, which I never saw coming, but you said about talking about love what you do. I got into this job out of out of interest and, and went to a graduation ceremony online and watched the families during COVID and then got to a few colleges and saw what they do. And I love what I'm doing. Never, ever would I thought I'd be working in the career college sector, being an advocate for what they do. But let me segue that back to the conversation about a path. There's no straight line in careers anymore, but you've got a skill. You have something that that maybe you have now or you had early on that others don't have. What would you think it is that, that you have got that specific skill that people should have? One of the skills is that if I don't know something, I tell people, I don't pretend to know anything that I don't know or I don't have a number on. In the same way that we do lots of media interviews and journalists would ask me a question and they would get upset when I'd say, I don't know. 
I don't know the answer to that question because they'd say, well, a lot of other people would just make it up. I said, well, I'm going to tell you, I don't know. And one of the first things that we tell people in the firm is that if you're working on something and you're unsure, ask someone. It'd be like, is this the fastest way to do this? It seems to be taking too long. Is this the right way? Is there something that I might miss or is this the way it is? And not everyone has the disposition to ask for help. And you know, the thing is, is if you are a lifelong learner, you start off by saying, I don't know everything, right? Because if you think that you know everything, you're not a lifelong learner. You know, that's why that particular attitude of I could always learn more and I can always improve my skill set is actually critical. And I, I think for me, I think that's one of the reasons why we've done well is because I've been with clients and I've said, I don't know. And they would be shocked. But you know what? They don't think that I'm stupid. No. They just think that, well, he's calling. But I say, I don't know, but I'll get back to you. I'm going to find out. Go find right? out. So yeah. I think that's the important. So that whole idea of learning and understanding that there's always stuff that you can learn and know, but being honest enough to tell people, I don't know, it's hard for some people to say that. The one I've learned, and I, and I wish I'd known earlier, was don't be afraid to make mistakes. Don't make be afraid to break things. Figure out what you broke, then go fix it. Have a plan. I always encourage people who work around me to go break something, get it wrong, but then put your hand up and say, I got a problem. You'll never be judged for having a problem if you put your hand up and we can all work together to find a solution. And the other thing I push people now really hard on is come with a solution. Don't just come with a problem. Yes. Come 100%. with a solution that... And maybe we don't do your solution. I had I had the pleasure of working for one of the greatest leaders in Canada, Darren Entwistle at TELUS. Yep. Who now is 25 plus years, I think, is CEO of that company and an amazing leader. And we had a, a drag him out call one time with about 30 of us. And him and I were going at it over an issue, trying to figure something out. And he finally said, fine, we'll do it your way. And when we're wrong, we'll come back and do it my way. But we had debated it upside down. And be honest with you, we were about 1% different about what we were going to do. But he's like, yeah, go do it. Go try it. And if it doesn't work, put your hand up and we'll try another direction. Can I tell you the meetings that I worry about is when no one gets challenged. When no one says, hey, you know, you know what? I think there might be another way that we could do this. Or I have another idea. Or maybe have we thought of this? Groupthink is like a telltale sign that you've got the wrong people around the table that you've got the wrong culture because people are afraid to say stuff. But, you know, Michael, to your comment, tell us an end whistle. It's, it's like the whole idea is people have to believe that they're in a safe space. You know, the number of times when I'd say I'd be with a client, I was just with a client like an hour ago, like a multi-billion dollar company. And I'm with the CEO and I said, and this is my crazy idea for you for today. And uh, I see other people kind of clutch up and I'm kind of like, you know what? But You've, you've got to put those things on the table because that's that's how the learning process works and that's how organizations are successful and that's how people are successful too. Yep. I like the line, there's no such thing as a bad idea, but sometimes there's some really, really bad ideas. <laughs> but if you get them on the table and you talk them through, you usually end up somewhere pretty good. And the, the thing I was lucky about with the culture there at when I, my time at TELUS was at the end of the day... Sometimes we, I was going out and advocating something I didn't necessarily agree with the way we were going to do it, but because we'd had the discussion where we called fair process, because we had gone through the conversation of figuring out how to do it together, you could buy in and try. Yep. Because you were heard, you were listened to. So that makes for some interesting uh, meetings, but it, you get to a good result. So tell me about one thing here that we were going to touch on was one of your own personal mentors. 
that one individual that that really changed oh. your path. Okay, he's still alive, ninety five years old. His name's William McDonald. William McDonald. He's a lawyer. He's still working. He's ninety five years old. He's still working, a little bit. And this was the best piece of advice that he's given to me, and I passed this piece of advice on to other people. He said, and he's a very accomplished lawyer and policy wonk, just a great thinker, a great guy to talk to. Like He's 95 years old, and I have to pay attention when I'm talking to him because he's so brilliant. His piece of advice to me is that every day in your schedule, you should talk to someone interesting, except it's not to make money, it's not to advance your career. There's no purpose other than to talk to someone interesting that you might learn from. And he said, do that every day. How he became friends with me is he saw me on TV and he goes, that guy looks interesting. And then he started calling his friends. Hey, do you know Nick Nanos? Do you know Nick Nanos? After about five calls, he hit a guy that knew me and he said, I'd like you to set up. I'd like to have lunch with Nick. And then we hit it off and became friends. But this whole idea that every day you have to improve yourself and you have to talk to someone interesting where you could learn something. And he said, it doesn't have to even be in your field, anything. He said he had done that for 70 years. 70 years he'd done that. And he has the most amazing network. He knows so much that he's learned from other people. And, you know, that that was the best piece of advice. He's still alive and he's my mentor. He's having a tough time mobility-wise, but he's just a great Canadian and... uh it's just that, you know, someone says something and it sticks with you. That really stuck with me. We're going to have to find a way to make sure he gets a chance to hear that. I had the pleasure. We had one of these recently. I had a lunch yesterday with uh, Michelle Coates-Mather, who is Mike Coates's daughter. Yes. That came out of a podcast when I asked Goldie Hyder about his mentor. And I got talking about Mike Robinson and he got talking about Mike Coates. Coats, of course. Which led the two of us to having lunch and having what I'll call one of those interesting discussions. You know, interesting people. And we're like, how do we find a way to someday do something together? That came out of one of those moments. I've always been a, uh, a fervent networker. I think that's the greatest skill that I've taught people is teach them how to network. Get them out there. Open a door. Shake a hand, then shake another hand. And don't be afraid to talk to people. I recently finished a course just in the last couple months and had 30 people in the class. You know, I learned stuff from my classmates, but it was kind of like one of those things where there were 30 other interesting people and I made it a point to talk to them, to learn about their story and stuff like that. And I would say that I learned just as much outside of the course that I took from the people that I talked to that I was taking the course with as a student than I did out of the course itself. Always the way. And what's interesting, I've recently learned was you can't make everybody like yourself either. You can't make someone be an extrovert. You can't make someone shake everybody's hand and have a conversation either. But that's been one of my things is help people network, but they can't, not everybody can do it. Yeah. I'd always take the point of view, and this is my perspective at least, is everyone has an interesting story. And if you're really genuinely interested in other people, it's not about you talking to them. It's about them talking to you. And I'd always say, hey, listen, what's your story? Kind of like what we're doing now. How did you get into this? You learn through those stories and those types of discussions. And it's not about you doing all the talking. It's about you doing listening. Well, one of the things I'm lucky to do is go to grads yeah. of these career colleges. And they're unique because I went to one that had a, it must have been three or 4,000 people in a, in a room in Toronto. And I was looking around going, I can't figure the math out here. 
I've got two daughters graduating from Queens this year, and each is allowed three guests. And I looked over at the owner of this career college, and he went, why would you limit the crowd? Yeah. And some of them will bring 15 or 20 people because this is the first time someone from their family has graduated from a post-secondary institution, which career colleges are. And it's so exciting to see that kind of an environment when, when people are around. And I chase the students and talk to them and try and capture their stories because they're so unique and they're so different. And and we're going to be putting one out soon about a, a woman here in Ottawa that tenacity is is an understatement when it comes to what she went through to get through the Algonquin Career Academy. Her story is incredible. I wish that the media would regularly report on graduation ceremonies, period. Because these graduation ceremonies are a celebration of the individual, celebration of friends and family and stuff like that. You see Canada and you get to see the future. The news is always focused on man bites dog or whatever the hell it is, right? But to your point, these graduation ceremonies are really important and they're great celebrations and we should all celebrate them, even if we, you know, might not know anybody because it's just an exciting, it's an exciting, positive experience. That was the best part when I was volunteering at Carleton. The best part of being a volunteer was shaking someone's hand and give, putting that piece of paper and then to hear their parents or their friends do a shout out or whatever it was just fantastic. The scream from the crowd is always awesome yeah. when you see that. And I like your style, by the way. It's still the same. You were the chancellor of Carleton University, weren't you? The chair of the board. Chair of the board. Okay. But you call That's yourself a, different a volunteer. Role. You call yourself I didn't, a volunteer. I didn't, I didn't have any fur no on fur my robe. robe yeah. you want, no, no fur. No fur. But you have fur for the one at home. Oh, get no. out of here. It's velour, brother. Velour. 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 No, velvet. Velvet. Funny how we just <laughs> fall back into friendship, isn't it? We don't see each other very often anymore, but it goes back to that. So I'm going to go ask you one more serious question before we finish on a fun one. But we talked about international students, but what are you doing any polling? I know you've got your own views, but around the public post-secondary institutions, post-secondary education in Canada, what are you seeing in your research? What's really interesting, and you know, think of all the things that are kind of not great in our society, right? People are worried about paying the bills. They are mistrustful of politicians. They don't trust what they see in the media and stuff like that. There's a study that we do on institutions and their contribution to making Canada a better place. Michael, at the very top of the list is post-secondary education. It's ahead of healthcare. It's ahead of the Supreme Court. It's ahead of defense. It's ahead of any politician for sure by a country mile. So it's just one of those things where in a world where people are struggling to pay for the bills, where they're mistrustful of institutions and where they're having a tough time, at the very top of the list is post-secondary education as a contributor for Canada to being a better place. And you know what? The other thing that we know from our research is that the countries that do the best job on education and especially post-secondary education are the strongest democracies, are the most vibrant economies. Like if I could use Germany as an example, like they have a great educational system like university, college, and trade. It is amazing what they do because kids can be on a path and they can skill up and they'll have jobs in Germany. And uh, that's what makes Germany, their economy so strong. Very clear paths. I'm still, uh, well, I've been in this job for two and a half years. I'm out speaking at conferences now to talk about skilled trades. Yeah. To talk about how being a truck driver is a very valuable skill set that can 
earn you a very, very good living for a long time, a very rewarding living. A lot of the people I've talked to that are doing it too. So, But to your point, Michael, these are not our grandfather's trades. Yeah. These trades now include technology, logistics, coordination, software, hardware. Do you know what I mean? Like it's so there's no such thing as kind of like a low skill trade. Like hospitality has become a high skill trade, right? Yep. So, you know, the thing is, is that it's not like it was 30, 40 years ago when we were kids, no. right? All of these have a technology component. They have data components, all that kind of stuff. We're getting to the point where 30 or 40 years ago is starting to be a generous definition of when we were kids, Nick. It's it's borderline now. We're yeah. crossing, yeah, yeah. crossing another one of those lines in, in February that, that just kind of, it, it kind of hits your heart. So I'm going to ask you one last question, and this is a curveball. We, no warning, no warning. Okay. But I know you to be an optimistic guy, and we both, and I'll, and I'll answer it myself first. This is off the top of my head. We both had the pleasure of being around politicians, being involved in politics. And you, you could say about that polling about people, and they'd, they'd be down the bottom of the line. And I think it's unfair because you just have to tell the story of, of Rob Merrifield, who I remember who was from the Jasper area in Alberta, who would drive every Sunday night to Edmonton to catch an overnight flight to Ottawa, which sometimes would go through Toronto, spend all week, then fly home and spend the weekend in the riding working. And I remember him one day being really tired for a meeting I had with him on a Monday morning, and he explained what his weekend looked like, flying back, doing that drive, doing the drive back. So tell me about, and mine's is um, probably Rob, because he did keep a really optimistic view of the world while he was doing that kind of stuff as a backbench MP, and that was in opposition days. Tell me about some of that, that optimistic or that favorite politician you've met over your career. The most favorite politician that I've met. That's a unique question, I know. Mm. I know, maybe I threw you a big curveball. Can I tell you the, the, the first guy that kind of wowed me? There you go, there it is. George Hees. I don't know if you've ever heard of George, George Hees. I remember George Hees. George Hees was a conservative. And uh, I was a high school student you know, in the 1980s, high school student. And some young whippersnapper named uh, Brian Mulroney was uh, just the new leader of the conservative. And he's being introduced by uh, George Hees. Actually, I've got two guys now. I was introduced by George Hees. So I was, I was going to school in Oshawa. I went to high school in Oshawa. So I go to a, a gathering like a large gathering to see the new leader of the conservative party. George Hees is introducing him and he gives the most amazing speech. Actually, he gave a better speech than Brian Mulrooney did. And I was thinking, well, George, he should be the leader because he was positive. He was hopeful. He was talking about what Canada can achieve as a nation. And for him, he said, this guy, this young guy beside me, Brian Mulrooney is the future for where he's going to take us. So George, he's number one. And also tied for number one, someone we've just lost, Ed Broadbent. Oh, Ed. Ed Broadbent. So I told you I went to high school in Oshawa. Ed Broadbent came to my high school. I went to O'Neill Collegiate and Vocational Institute. He came to the high school as our member of parliament, and he gave a one-hour talk about democracy. He never at once said, vote New Democrat, or never told us how to vote. He never lectured us about public policy issues and stuff like that, but he talked about being a good citizen, being engaged in the democratic process, asking questions, making decisions, and about respect. In the same way that George Hees was kind of inspirational, Ed Broadbent was intellectual, kind of like, here's what makes for a good citizen. And he told us, 
you need to be good citizens. If you're good citizens, our democracy will work. We'll get the best leaders. We'll have good public policy. So there you go. Tied for first, Ed Broadbent, God bless his soul, and George Hees, New Democrat and a conservative. I don't know if I need to add a liberal in there. No, but... you're, you're, you're good. I was going to throw in one of the guys that I love, John Turner, because the guy just, I just loved being around him when I had the pleasure of doing some things with him. And it was about public service for him. It always was. And I don't think we spend enough time celebrating politicians. So your comment, I'm going to wrap it up on, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, do you know what? The Manos brothers, when we'd sit, and I remember one time they said, you know, dad, we've talked about politics a lot because of what you do as a family. And they said, we don't know how you vote. Could you imagine your kids telling you they don't know how you actually vote? I think vote? I know how you vote. Because the thing is, is that whenever I talk about politics, I would say there are good people and bad people. I don't really care what party they're, they're from. I respect people's diversity of opinion, but there are people that I would say are just fundamentally not good people and other people that are good people. And I tell the boys, I point at some politician, I'd say, that's a good person. Maybe I don't agree with everything that they have to say, but they're good. We need more people like that in politics. Well, John Turner said to me one time that at, ne at no point did he ever feel it was personal between him and Brian Mulroney. Yeah. There was always respect. They disagreed on big issues, but it wasn't personal, was what he said to me one night. I thought, that's interesting. That's good. Because those were wicked, vicious campaigns in 84 and 88, and it was toe-to-toe -to -toe street fighting across the whole country. Free trade. Uh, free trade and, and different issues, the GST that came back. Came into play in the second one in Meech Lake. There was a lot of big, big, big personal, emotional issues. So I'm, I'm going to leave it there, but I'm going to make a statement there that goes kind of roots, roots back to your comments about Ed Broadbent because it's about community, it's about engagement, it's about making a difference. Nick, you've what I like to say left footprints. I was honored you chose to give us some time today. You're a busy guy, but you have left footprints where you go intellectually economically, the work you do, but more importantly, I think, family and community. So, Nick, thank you for everything uh, that, that you do in our community. Say hi to John for me. I will. The three of us are going to have to have a lunch soon. 100%. Figure out a way to get together. And uh, thank you for joining us. For everybody, uh, we'll issue out a new podcast next week. We're still sticking to issuing one out every Wednesday morning and uh, look forward to another conversation next week. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Ed Up Canada podcast. We release new episodes regularly, so make sure you hit that subscribe button so you know when they are officially out. If you love this episode, please leave a four or five star review wherever you listen to your podcast so that others can also discover how a set of skills can lead to success. Thanks for learning with us.